And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at what God's Word says about God's people. Now, if you're wondering what the word church actually means, it actually comes from a a Greek word, ekklesia, that we find in the New Testament, a word that means an assembly, a gathering, or a congregation of people. And so that's why the pros called churchology ecclesiology. But we're going to be thinking about the church uh, this morning. Now, you should know and be encouraged that you are fortunate to have pastors and elders who actually love the church and love to study what the Word of God says about the church. But we actually believe the Bible says something about how we ought to gather together, about how we ought to live together, and what it looks like and what it means for us to be the people of God here in the New Testament. Now, Josh Griever kicked us off a couple of weeks ago saying uh, something that I thought was so encouraging. He said, I want you to leave astonished at the wisdom and goodness of God in creating the church. Isn't that good? I think you in your hearts know that it is a good thing and that we ought to be astonished by the nature of the church and what God has done. And my hope is that that sense grows in you throughout this season and this series. Now, I think that it's a good overall goal for the way that we think about the church over these coming weeks. See, last week, you'll remember two weeks ago, that Josh showed us that Israel was the visible people of God, committed in covenant to Him to display God's glory to the nation. And we as the church are actually Israel 2.0. We are uh, a group of regenerate folks who have gathered around Christ to display His glory to the nations until Christ returns. So my job today, I believe, is to give that vision hands and feet and a a torso, uh, arms, um, legs, Uh, I believe that what we want to see today is that vision of the universal church actually take on body form and a visible presence in local churches where we are membered. And that's what I want to think about today. You know, I often tell people uh, that the greatest uh, challenge that I faced early in ministry was actually talking about membership, and I didn't understand that this would be such a controversial issue. Uh, It was controversial when I was on the East Coast, where the hardest thing I had when it came to church membership was to get dead people off the membership rolls. True story. I think they thought there was like a hyperlink to the Lamb's Book of Life. But when I got to the West Coast, it was like everything changed. Like people were having trouble with it, but for the opposite reason, uh, the hardest thing I had uh, that I faced when I came here to the West Coast was actually getting living people onto the membership rolls. Here, I think people have a a very strong sense of individualism. In in fact, it it might be that many have even been influenced um, by the independence of our age or even pietism, you know, that that religious belief that salvation is an individual kind of experience and has nothing to do with community or physical or visible things. But this morning, what I want to show is, I want to show that actually the Bible has much more to say about what it looks to be a spiritual people. In fact, I believe that the Bible says a lot about what it means for us to be members of one body. And even though you might not agree with the word membership, maybe you think that I don't see that in the Bible, I want you to know that I'm actually arguing that the Bible assumes, even if you don't agree that it says, an embodied membership of the people of God throughout uh, throughout the Bible, even if you don't think the word is used. In other words, as you're reading through the New Testament, 
a local church is assumed all over the place where people are actually membered to it in the ways that we're going to be talking about this morning. So this morning, as you think about this, I want you to know that membership is a helpful word that we use. We'd use a better word if we had one, but a helpful word to discuss what it means to be officially a part of a local church. Now, I think that y'all are fine with this. I mean, you are gathering in a church that has been named Trinity Bible Church, right? Trinity is a, a very important theological word, but you'll notice that it's actually nowhere in the Bible. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint you if you didn't know that. And yet, Trinity is a core theological doctrine for anybody that considers themselves to be orthodox. But a helpful word to think about, to help us think about what it means about the nature of who God is. In the same way, I think membership helps us think about what we are called to do as the people of God right now. Now, you may struggle with this, this idea of being a member of a church because you've had bad leaders in the past or you have theological reasons. But I want to do two things this morning. I have two purposes. First, I hope to show that the way God has worked and is working in redemptive history has always been through an embodied gathering of people. God has always done that. He has always been working through an embodied gathering of people. And second, I want to expose you to the biblical benefits and responsibilities that come with membership. So I want you to show the value of it. I want you to show you throughout the scriptures. And then I want to also show you what are the benefits and responsibilities of membership. Now, to clarify what I'm talking about, I wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page. I'm going to be using some words throughout, so I came up with some definitions to help you follow along. So uh, those definitions are actually in your bulletin. You can follow along there. Uh, But these are the definitions that I'm going to be assuming as I'm talking about the church today and throughout the series. The first is the universal church. The universal church is the body and bride of Christ, her head, made up of all the children of God throughout the ages. We also believe in the local church, and the local church, as I'm using it, is is a group of Christians officially committed to one another in covenant relationship with its elders and deacons to meet regularly in a particular place and time to hear gospel preaching, observe the ordinances of baptism and communion, and practice church discipline until Jesus returns. And then the third definition is church membership. Church membership is a Christian's formal, obedient submission to a particular local church, manifesting an embodied evidence of the spiritual reality of union with Christ and his body, the church. Now, that's a lot of stuff. You can go home and think about that. But if you ever like, well, what did he mean by that? We'll go back and look it up, and there it is. So here we go. First, our first point is this. An embodied king came from an embodied kingdom of people. An embodied king came for an embodied gathering or kingdom of people. Now, I want to focus on this in two ways. The first is this. Jesus came in the flesh. Now, I hope you're okay with me starting with Jesus, but I think Jesus is a great place to start, like, all the time. And so, when we think about this idea of church membership, um, I think it's important for us to recognize that God has always demonstrated His glory through visible, embodied groups of people, and I believe there's a connection here to why Jesus appearing in the flesh was such a big deal in 1 John. So you can look in 1 John chapter 4, and you'll remember that there, there were some false teachers that were arguing that Jesus did not come in a body, that he was a little bit more like Luke Skywalker in the last fight scene in The Last Jedi. Have you seen that? Well, let, let me just ruin the movie for you real quick if you haven't. 
In that scene, Kylo Ren comes and he goes to slash through Luke Skywalker and then he turns around and notices that nothing's happened to him. Now, usually when you hit somebody with a lightsaber, they fall down or they fall in half, but he just stands there, he's fine, and he realizes that what happens is Luke was actually not there in body, he had actually projected himself there so it looked like he was there so that he could save his people from destruction. I think that's a great image of what the people of 1 John seem to be believing. That Jesus didn't really come in a kind of physical form, but he actually came in some kind of mystical, sort of ghost-like, visible experience to save his people. Well, that's why we find John in 1 John 4, 2-3 saying, actually, it's important to recognize that Jesus came in the flesh. See, they, the, the, the false teachers believed that the body was, was potentially evil, uh, that the spirit was good, and yet in 1 John 4, 2-3, he says, by this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So don't miss this. We serve an embodied king who died to save an embodied people. God's word clearly says that humans are more than biology, but they are not less than bodies. That is true, Old Testament, New Testament, and the new heavens and the new earth. See, Jesus died in the body on the cross as a sacrifice for you because he came, catch this, to save all of you. He didn't come to save your soul and not your body, but body and soul. And that's why He had to come in the flesh. See, we find in the Bible that God is very clear that if you serve God with your body and not with your heart, then you're a hypocrite. And if you say that you serve God with your soul but not your body, 1 John says you're a liar. A a real Christian is a Christian in body and soul, someone who follows God. God wants you, hear me, to love Him. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, right? And your mind. And if Jesus came as a hologram, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. But if Jesus died in the flesh, he cares about redeeming embodied worshipers. And that's why Jesus says that if the eye causes you to sin, you need to gouge it out because it's better to lose your eye than for your body to burn in hell. Positively, it points to heaven as a renewed physical universe where we have renewed physical bodies where we will worship an embodied king forever. Now, I know when you hear this, you might be thinking, why is that so important? Well, it's important because you need to understand the emphasis that the Bible places on visible, tangible, physical people worshiping God with all that they are, not just their imaginations. But there's a second thing here. As part of this embodiment, it's that Jesus died for an embodied people. Jesus died for an embodied people with an emphasis on people. We see that in Titus 2.14 that we're about to look at. Now, in bowling alone, Robert Putman, he goes through and he shows that membership in everything from bowling leagues to local churches has declined over our generation, especially over the last decade. You'll notice also that your life reflects a kind of disinterest in meeting with tangible people, right? So most folks, when they want to know how socially networked you are, that used to mean how many people you know, but now it means how many Facebook friends you have. Now how many of you could honestly say that you have seen a majority of your Facebook friends in the last month? 
Wow. And yet how many people actually would say that that is kind of the way that I understand myself as being connected or not connected or disconnected, and yet we haven't had a bodily experience with many of those people that we consider ourselves to have significant relationship. I even read of an English lady recently who's petitioned to marry her robot. Now, why is that important? Well, she's like, well, I, you know, I want a, a physical body, but I don't really even care if it's like a, a spiritual soul, right? So we're, we're starting to misunderstand what it means to be human, that we are bo- embodied people who have spirits or souls and bodies. In fact, our staunch cultural individualism, it's not just a philosophical misfiring, okay? It, it's more than that. I believe that our individualism is deeply theological, In other words, we we misunderstand what it means to be embodied relationally because we misunderstand who God is. And so we need to be reminded. See, this age of meism needs to hear what God's Word has to say about an embodied weism. Right? We are not just me's, we are we's. We are not just a person, but a people. And Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus Christ gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, did you, did you catch that? Jesus didn't just come for a me, but a we. And Jesus came as the king of a kingdom of people, not just as a life coach for a person. So God is worried about a community of people that he has drawn to himself. Now, please do not understand me here. This might be a place where you could misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that you individually do not need to respond to the gospel. In fact, each of us must individually turn from living for this world to living for Christ who came in his body to save his body, the church, and was raised bodily to prove the gospel is truth that you can stake your life on. But if you're a non-Christian, and you put your faith in Christ today, and I hope you would, I want to make sure you understand what it is that you are doing. See, faith recognizes what one author dredges up, this word, imperium. The imperium of Jesus Christ. An imperium is a word that speaks of an ultimate authority. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are saying that the buck stops with Jesus. He is the great authority over all things. The desires of my heart, they are not supreme. It is the sovereignty of Christ that reigns supreme even over my desires and whether or not I desire what I ought. Faith recognizes Christ is that highest authority and He is an authority over not just a a person, but over a kingdom of embodied people. So if you truly place your faith in King Jesus, you will also join a local embodied assembly of people called a church where Jesus reigns right now. Did you know that Jesus is like king right now over us? That his word reigns supreme over you and me? And our local church is a testimony to that. In fact, Christian, God has always worked through an embodied people to display His glory by imaging Himself to the surrounding world through them. See, God created Adam and Eve in the beginning as an image, as in His image and after His likeness. And you'll remember Israel was created as a people to display the glory of God to the nations. That wasn't just a metaphor. 
They literally bodily were meant to live in such a way that it was identifiable that this group mirrored and exalted and lifted up on high the name of their God who redeemed them. And so Ephesians 2, 14-15 tells us that God even now is doing something very similar, but something new. See, the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, those brothers and sisters look a lot different than us. We look like a very strange adoptive family where we are not quite paying attention to what one another look like or where we're from. And Ephesians 2, 14 to 15 says the gospel does this. It not only reconciles us to God, but catch what Paul says. It obliterated the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, creating one new what? Body. A, a visible, identifiable group to display his power. And so the gospel creates a people, a new family and kingdom that images God to the world. The gospel creates a people in this new family to image God to the world. And I love what Joseph Hellerman says here. In his book, he says this. He says, salvation is a community-creating event. I love that. It creates a community such that salvation includes membership in God's group. Don't you want to be part of God's group? Aren't you glad you are part of God's group? Salvation means that you are part of the people of God. What a glorious truth that is. But if you love Jesus, we are told that you will also love His bride, the church. And that is in real time. Not just conceptually. Not just in your imagination. Now, here's why I'm hassling with, you, with this so much. You might be wondering, okay, I get it. Like, a bodied people. Why is that so important? Well, it's because I believe, and I've heard many say that They'll say something like, well, I I love Jesus, and I even love the universal church, but I don't really like local churches for all kinds of reasons, which ultimately fit into the category that they are messy and inconvenient. I mean, just fill in the blank. And I get what they mean by that, because I'm a pastor, and I see the mess, and I see the inconvenience. But this really also reminds me of a quote by a, a great theologian. Linus from Peanuts, who said, I love mankind, it's people I hate. Right? Like, I know I'm supposed to love the people of God, but my problem is the actual people of God. And I'm sure that Jesus would have been surprised by that. But the New Testament does speak of the universal church. It does. But it largely speaks to specific local churches. Real people, like Paul's letters to Rome and to to Corinth and to Ephesus or the seven local churches that were held accountable in Revelations 1 to 3, specifically held accountable for the way they lived. And I want to encourage you as we continue in this series to realize I believe there's a much stronger connection between the universal church and the local church than what you have thought in the past. In fact, I found a, a quote in Millard Erickson's Systematic Theology that I think does a great job of explaining the biblical relationship between that universal church that we all love and those local churches that we want to love, right? And this is what he says. We should take note that the individual congregation or group of believers in a specific place, like us, is never regarded as only a part or component of the whole church. The church is not a sum or a composite of the individual local groups. 
But instead, the whole is found in each place. In other words, when we speak of the church at Trinity Bible Church, we are not less than the true church of Jesus Christ. King Jesus truly reigns over local churches submitting to King Jesus. I like the the image that Jonathan Lehman uses to help explain this. He refers to local churches as embassies. And he says local churches are not the kingdom of God, but they are embassies of the kingdom of God. Now, an embassy, if you don't know what that is, it's an institution that represents one nation inside of another nation. So it declares its home nation's interest to that host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in that nation. So we, in in the local church, represent the city of God, surrounded by the city of man. We are declaring the interest of our King, King Jesus, to a lost and dying world. And we are here to visibly manifest the glory of God to them. Ephesians 3.20, Paul tells us that the church has an amazing citizenship. And you need to be reminded of this this morning, because this, if you're tired, this is something that ought to wake you up. It says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Is, right now, in heaven. That's where our citizenship is, and we from it await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we are in the embassy. We are awaiting the return of Christ, but our citizenship is where our King is, King Jesus. So our home nation is where Jesus is, but He reigns where we are in our local church embassy. Now, if you were to visit our interim Jafet, by way of illustration, next year in the Philippines, which I'm sure he would love, right Jafet? So you were to, to go and visit him, Jafet would say, he would say, like, this is great, I'd be excited, I hope you brought me money and books. But if, you're, if your passport were to go out while you were there, you would be stuck in the Philippines. You could not get out unless, unless you went to an American embassy. And you go to the American embassy and you go in and they type in a few, you know, little key types, I think it's like this, or like this. And then they look up and they see like, oh yeah, you're an American citizen. And they say, yes, you're a citizen of the United States of America, right? Well, it's kind of the same way in local churches. You go to a local church and you declare that I believe the gospel. And I intend to live as one who has come under the sovereignty of King Jesus. And can you just sort of stamp my passport? And that's what we're doing. We're declaring that we really believe you to have citizenship in heaven. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Could it be that maybe the way that we view the local church is like an inch deep when God says it actually should be like a mile deep? Well, that's what I want to do. I want us to think about for a moment the kind of benefits and responsibilities that we're talking about when we talk about church membership. And my hope is is that we begin to plumb the depths of what it means to be a committed member of a local church. And so we're going to look at a number of these. I've got a list of six, one short of perfection because who's perfect, right? And we're going to look at these one by one, and I hope that you see the way that God wants to give you both benefits, privileges, and responsibilities in joining yourself to other Christians. And so here we go. This is our second main area of of discussion. That's this, the benefits and responsibilities of membership. First, first benefit and responsibility is a loving community. This is the foundational one, a loving community. I'm just curious, uh, would any of you like a loving community? Anybody? Is anybody grateful for the loving community that we have here? I am so grateful. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us and a fallen humanity 
hopes of the loving community that we long for. Only the gospel does that. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And you'll remember there in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So ought you to love one another. Now, I love the context of this because you'll remember that Jesus had just served the disciples by washing their feet, one of the lowest possible duties that someone could have accomplished for someone else. It was a low role. And as I read that, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, this is the man who has skills, right? He's raised the dead, he's healed the sick, and he probably could be doing something much better with his time than washing feet. Couldn't somebody else do that? And yet Jesus says this kind of sacrificial love is the model of what God-like love is going to look like between disciples. Now, here's why this is important. This is important because this was just a foreshadowing of a greater act of service and humiliation that would later be carried out on the cross when Jesus died for sinners to make them right with his Father in heaven. And that cruciform or cross-shaped love that Christ demonstrated I believe is the picture of the one anotherness, that one anothering that we read all over the rest of the New Testament. I believe what Jesus is saying is when you read one another, that is speaking of the kind of sacrificial love that I am calling each of you to when you are living in committed relationship with one another. It is a sacrificial kind of love. So Jesus here has told us that's what loving one another looks like I believe those 61 and others of the New Testament are primarily, if not exclusively, applied in the context of the local church with real, messy, flesh and blood people. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13, he tells the, church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, for you were called to freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't miss this. Your your chief act of freedom is actually denying yourself, taking up your cross, and loving others sacrificially. That's what biblical freedom looks like. You're no longer a slave to sin and selfishness, but you are freed to go about the cabin and love as God loves. That's the meaning of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel, to draw us into love of others as God has loved us. Sacrificially serving one another is actually, hear me, this is important, a a perk and benefit of membership, not a prerequisite. We get to serve one another as Christ served us because Christ has served us at the cross. That's why we say, if you want to serve us, that's great. Like, that's not the chief way, reason we want you to join us. That's actually a benefit of of serving with us is that you, you join us in our mission of making much of Christ. And not only that, we know that as we love one another self-sacrificially, we are actually imaging Christ to others. And so we want to be honest about who Christ is and make sure those who are with us actually love Jesus. That's why we ask people to join before they serve. See, our church family commits to loving and serving one another visibly to exalt Christ's reign on earth. So I feel sad for church hoppers who are often simultaneously running after and away from a loving community at the same time. And here's what I mean. Loving community takes the combination of two things, sacrificial love and time. 
And if you run away from a body that you've committed yourself to and spent much time with, then you are running away from an investment that ultimately builds up into the kind of loving community that Jesus speaks of. So you serve what you love and you love what you serve. And this loving community is a benefit that comes with responsibilities. The responsibility of officially committing yourself to loving, please hear me closely, I want to make sure this is, this is honest, you are committing yourself to loving other weird, messy people in sacrificial ways. Did, did y'all catch that? You are not committing to loving the ideal human who always responds the way that you think that they should. You are not committing to loving a non-sinner who will never mess up. You are committing to loving weird people like me. And if you think you've seen the weirdness, just ask my wife. It goes deep. We're weird people. And here's the deal. You're thinking like, okay, good. I can commit to that as long as you're like straight up front with me. But be straight up front with yourself. You're weird too. You are a weird people that God has called to love other weird people. And if you don't get that straight, you'll never understand what it means to live in loving community. So love weird people and know that you're weird. That's point one if you want to be honest. When loving others is hard, love without grumbling and you are getting close to a cross-like love. But there's a second thing. Benefit and and responsibility of leadership uh, or of uh, membership, it's submitting to leadership. That's second, submitting to leadership. Now, you remember that Paul says that pastors and teachers are actually a gift to the church. He says that in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, where he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of the church. God gave these shepherds or pastors to the church as a gift. So shepherds who open up God's word. And they show you that that God is, in His Word, sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Those are gifts to you, the church, straight from God, straight from heaven. Pastors who actually are willing to pray for you and to rebuke you where they see your life or your doctrine is out of line. They are a gift that God has given that you need in your life. Now, I know that sounds strange to you. But maybe this sounds stranger. I believe that your Bible is indeed sufficient to lead you to live a godly life. But catch this. Your Bible also says that you need pastors to help you believe right and live right. Did you catch that? So if you really believe your Bible, your Bible says you need pastors. Now I know that sounds strange in an individualistic culture. But the benefit of having godly leaders, it also comes with responsibilities. So uh, look with me in Hebrews 13, 17. This is a verse that really, I believe, ought to drive your prayers for your pastors and your elders. Same thing. You should be driven in your prayer life by this verse and what you are called to, but also what pastors are called to. Notice what he says. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, who do you think the pastors have to give an account to here? Well, I think it's clear from 2 Timothy and elsewhere. It's to Jesus on the last day when he returns. It's a common theme in the Bible. We'll be held accountable for our shepherding and teaching. Now, think about this. 
If you knew that you were going to have to give an account to Jesus for how you looked over, shepherded, and cared for somebody, wouldn't you want to know specifically who it was you were going to be giving an account for? Makes kind of, that's common sense, right? I mean, it's kind of weird if you showed up at a house and they said, okay, there are a bunch of kids here, some of them are hiding from you, and you're responsible for having all of them fed and in bed when I get back, and please don't lose all of them. Last time that happened, that was horrible. Of course not. Nobody would sign up for that gig. Well, even more so if you're thinking about the king of the universe showing up to hold us accountable. And so we want to, to have mercy and, and grace towards our pastors, especially in a city of five, growing on five million people in Phoenix. You, you would want to know who of those people a pastor is accountable for. I do. I want to know. I want a membership directory that tells me who am I going to be held accountable for on that last day. And those are the people that I am praying regularly for as one who will have to give an account. I don't have to give an account for everybody, but I do have to give an account for those. See, Jesus left the 99 for the one because he knew who his sheep were. I don't do goats. I talk to goats about becoming sheep, but I'm not responsible for goats. See, membership is the vehicle that lets us know who we will have to give an account for. Love leaders by letting them know you are formally submitting to their leadership. But members are responsible too. Did you notice that a member is to submit joyfully to the leaders because it will be of no advantage of them for leaders to be a rebellious group of gripers? Like if if, if members are rebellious and gripers, that's not really a benefit. Now, I think that what he's talking about, the benefit is on that last day when Christ returns and they have to give an account for how they follow the leaders who are following Christ. So please don't miss this. This is, I think, very important in our age. A podcast of John Piper cannot shepherd your soul. I'm not saying it's not good for you or helpful, but he is not coming after you. He does not know you. And if you meet him, he will probably not remember you. Why? Because he's got plenty going on with the sheep that he has committed himself to. In the same way, You need actual embodied pastors coming after you, an embodied person. So if you are joining a church, you are responsible to the pastors of your local church that you commit to, which leads to another related uh, aspect or benefit of membership. It's accountability and assurance. Accountability and insurance. Assurance, not insurance. See, accountability and and assurance... (laughs) are good friends with responsibilities and benefits. So you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus promises to build his church on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, I will give you, speaking of the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, Jesus gives the church the power of the keys, and that's any local church under King Jesus. The local church is a microcosm of the city of God, or an embassy of God. And so those who join a church receive assurance that what is bound on earth in membership is bound in heaven. It says something about the nature of who they are. Now this assurance is a benefit of membership, but it comes with the responsibility of accountability. Now remember in James 5, 19 to 20, James speaking to Christians says, My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from this wandering 
will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You'll notice here the wandering that he's saved from is wandering from the truth. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I I found that most Christians who who begin to, to wander from the truth first wander from a local church. They wander from a body of believers before they wander from the faith of Jesus Christ. They quit going to church and then begin to question the truth of God's Word. And God says you need accountability in your life. But not only that, we see the flip side of assurance in church discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 5, you remember the man is disciplined out of the church for living in egregious public unrepentant sin. And Paul says, hand him over to Satan. Now, that's one of those texts that you're thinking to yourself, man, that sounds like really cruel to hand someone over to Satan. But the goal is restoration. And for Paul, there are only two zip codes. He says there is the zip code of the city of God and of the city of man. Satan reigns in the world, but Jesus Christ reigns in the local church. Don't miss this. Both 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 say that members of a local church are responsible as a final court of appeals for unrepentant members going out. And that includes pastors who are caught in sin in 1 Timothy 5.19. They too are accountable to the church for what they teach and how they live. Now it makes sense that they would also be responsible for voting on new members who they would give an account for. That's the beauty and benefit of this, is that elders and other members will come after you if you wander from the truth. There's a fourth thing, experiencing spiritual gifts. The church of the living God, the body of Christ is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit thrives amidst a people of God. I love what Ben Merkel says of the use of spiritual gifts in the body. He says, The use of spiritual gifts forms part of the biblical basis for church membership, saying all of these gifts require a community. Without being joined to a local body, a Christian is not able to use properly the gifts that God has generously given. So what this means is, is that when you join a church, you are joining with the benefit of the spiritual gifts of others. And you're also responsible for using your gifts to be a blessing to the body. Now this is, I found to be really helpful to maturity in a Christian life. I found that, that it is a blessing to be the benefit, the benefactor of your spiritual gifts. You know, I, I am not as generous as some Christians in this body. But I have found that I am constantly compelled to want to be more generous by the generosity of so many of you. I'm not as good with children as Leslie Egolf is, but I'm very grateful that she's good with children and I can learn how to be better with children. I'm not as good with hospitality as somebody like Toby is, but I can grow in my desire to be hospitable because of the image and the the experience that I have with him and learning from him and watching him. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which many of you are gifted in very diverse kinds of ways, and it makes me a better Christian as I see it and as I am convicted by it. If so many folks here who are so faithful, faithful in evangelism like Reuben, faithful in all kinds of different ways, and I am grateful for that. The point is that I benefit from your gifts and am encouraged to grow. And I'm also responsible to sacrifice and serve you in ways that God has gifted me. Fifth, gathering together in worship. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a special thing spiritually that happens when we gather together to stir one another up. The, The Holy Spirit works in a unique way in community, so says the Bible, from what He works in individuals' lives. So that I believe there will be a discernible amount of growth and maturity in the person who is committed to a local church and the person who is not. So the Holy Spirit who seals us thrives when we commune together. When believers assemble, James Samra says that together their being in Christ is uniquely actualized and maturation is made uniquely possible. So we are, we are responsible to come and to stir up one another as we benefit from being stirred up. So I'm just curious, on Sunday morning when you come to church, do you take the responsibility of stirring others up seriously? You know what I'm saying? Do you come ready to stir up others? I think that maybe if, if we really thought about that responsibility when our feet hit the, mo- hit the floor on one, uh, Sunday mornings before we came to church, we'd be prayed up and ready to stir up, Right? We would come thinking about who is it that we are going to find and how are we going to stir them up towards love and good deeds. That's a responsibility that God gives you as a member of a church. Finally, evangelism. Going back to where we began in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 35, he ends by saying this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, clearly the picture here is a group of Christians loving one another in otherworldly ways, such that those on the outside are looking inside at a group of people who discernibly love one another in an otherworldly way, over time, in a particular place, such that they say, these are the people of God under the reign of God and King Jesus. See, Jesus never said non-Christians should belong before they believe. Membership clearly identifies who intends to represent Christ and who does not so that churches can welcome sinners far from God. The the murkier membership becomes, the less clear and and embodied the church's imaging God to a lost and dying world becomes. So don't miss this. The Bible says the local church is God's evangelistic strategy for humanity this side of the cross. He wants a group of people gathered loving one another sacrificially to declare what God is like and what Christ is like. You know what excites me most about Trinity right now? Is that we are growingly diverse as a congregation and gathered around Christ, loving one another in discernible, visible, sacrificial ways in such a way that new people notice. In fact, more and more over the last two years, I found that when people join the church, the thing that they talk about most when we ask what drew you to the church, they say it's the love of the people. That's what drew us. That excites me as a pastor. See, I believe that that kind of love is good news for lost people. I interned at a church um, uh, when I was younger. It's a long time ago. And when I was interning there, one of the things that fascinated me was that there was a man who was there who was a Harvard sociologist, and he originally came to the church because he was interested in a girl. And the church was known for like really strong preaching, and, and yet it was a girl that brought him in, And when he came, he stayed after the service, and he noticed how everybody stayed after the service and talked, and were really encouraged by one another. And the more striking thing was that this church had 130 nations represented, so these were really different people who genuinely seemed to love one another, and they were interested in one another, 
And he said, you know, all of my studies and writing over the past decades have told me that the thing that's going on here right now should not be happening according to the world's knowledge. There's something different going on here. So it was the compelling love of the community that actually brought them in and caused, them, uh, caused him to stay and actually to listen to what the preacher was saying. He said, what is it that they're listening to that is making them live in this way? What do these people actually believe? And it was actually through staying and listening to the preaching of the word and seeing the love of the community that caused him to repent and turn to Christ and become a believer. The thing that drew him was the exact thing that Jesus calls the church to be, a body of people loving one another to the glory of Christ that is compelling to a lost and dying world. That is exactly what we've been called to be as a church. And I sense that that is something that is happening more and more amongst us to the glory of God. Please hear me. God wants you to love others here sacrificially in an otherworldly way that dumbfounds the world and that lights up effulgently with the power of God on display in real time, in a real place, with a real messy people. And the benefit is putting massive dents in the gates of hell. The responsibility is showing up ready to live, love, and proclaim Christ. But here's the irony. I believe that if we focus on evangelism, as we ought to and should, but if we do it to the neglect of loving one another, we will lose our evangelistic witness. The more cruciform or cross-shaped our love is for one another, the stronger our witness will be to an outside world. Let's pray.